Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we are going to be talking about a team that did not make the playoffs last year, yet currently sits as the number two seed in their conference. So today, we're going to be talking about the Denver Nuggets with Tyler Metcalf. And Tyler, how are you doing? Doing great, Nick. Happy to be back. And Nuggets have been a ton of fun this year. The Nuggets have been a ton of fun this year, and I think I've been expecting them, and a lot of people around the NBA world have been expecting them to fall off a little bit from their really hot start to the season. And really all the falling off that they've done has been going from the top seed in the conference to where they sit now, which is in the number two slot. And the vast majority of the credit for that has to go to Nikola Jokic, who in, I think, a more normal year for the top MVP candidates would be getting some serious consideration for a nod on that MVP ballot. But I think this year, the top three has just been so spectacular that he's lost a little bit of shine. But he has been beyond ridiculous this year. And I think a huge part of that as well has been that he's gone from atrocious on the defensive end, which he was as a rookie, to Last year, I think he was certainly getting a lot better, but still well below average. And this year, I think you could argue that he's been about a league average defender, which is really all you need from him, given his incredible offensive gifts. But what are your thoughts on what we've seen from Jokic so far this year? Yes, yeah, so he's still playing at that all-NBA caliber level, um, especially for the center position. And his net rating is 7.2, which is just awesome. But statistically, it's kind of amazing that his numbers are almost identical to what they were last year, just from a box box score standpoint. Um, everything except uh, his three-point shooting, which is down quite a bit. Um, but like you said, the biggest improvement has been his, his effort on defense. And he's never going to be a great rim protector because he's just not a great athlete. But um, according to Cleaning the Glasses numbers, he is in the 90th percentile in steal rate among centers. So he's doing a better job of getting in the right spots and using his hands to disrupt plays. And it, it's really made a big difference for the team. So Jokic is currently leading the NBA in ESPN's Real Plus Minus stat among centers. And that's not particularly surprising, just given that his offensive real plus minus is almost double the offensive RPM of the next closest contender, who is Carl Anthony Towns. But the real surprising thing, for me at least, is that he's been slightly above league average, actually, according to that particular metric on the defensive end of the floor. And I think the thing with Jokic is sort of similar to the thing with James Harden, where Maybe he's not necessarily that great of a defender. For Harden, I think it's less about athletic limitations than it is for Jokic. But Harden at one point was leading the league in deflections. And you mentioned Jokic's steal numbers. I think that's a similar thing where even players who aren't exactly the best one-on-one -on -one defenders can still be really effective if, first of all, they're playing great team defense, which Jokic might not be able to get the athleticism down, but he can certainly get the positioning and the IQ-related parts of defense down. And... On the one hand, it's really difficult to play a defensive minus at center just because I think that's the most important defensive position. But Jokic has really improved to the point where you could argue that he's even above average at defense for his position. I'm not sure I'd go that far. But again, I mean, the difference between him being playable on defense versus not is huge for this team. Yeah, and the main thing is that they just had that young team had another year together. So just their team defense and what 
Mike Malone has been able to 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 do with that team on the defensive end has been really impressive this year. I thought they were going to fall off drastically from how they started the year, but the way they all they don't have really any great individual defenders, but the way they play together as a team, um, their rotations are on point. You know, they they're not leaving each other out to dry. They're not gambling. They're just playing really sound defense and the way that Jokic is paired with the with the other big men on the court and used and relied upon has been perfect for, for him and the team. And when you talk about the defensive play of the Nuggets, one does have to mention that they have fallen off pretty significantly from the start of the year when they were one of the league's best defenses. But you also have to mention the fact, and I think this is the most underrated part of how successful Denver has been this season, just having Paul Millsap be healthy and... Paul Millsap has been the anchor of this Nuggets defense whenever he's been healthy. I mentioned real plus minus numbers for Jokic earlier. Well, Paul Millsap is currently fourth among all power forwards in the league in that real plus minus metric behind slightly more well-known names in Anthony Davis and Giannis Adetokounmpo at one and two, and then someone who's been having an underrated spectacular season in Pascal Siakam, who's probably going to win the most improved player award. The thing about Millsap is that even as he's gotten older, he's still one of the smartest defensive players in the league. He's still able to cover for Jokic, not exactly as a rim protector, but as an incredibly effective switch defender. And the fact that the Nuggets are the second seed in the West this year versus missing the playoffs last year, I mean, I think if Paul Millsap had been healthy for even two-thirds of the year last year, Denver would have been a clear playoff. So we're never going to see the Paul Millsap that we saw in Atlanta again. I, I don't think, I think he's just too old at this point, but to see him healthy and contributing at the level that he is this year has been re- really encouraging and just great to see. I and mean, he's an awesome player in Atlanta. And I completely agree that if he was healthy last year, um, there there's no shot that the Nuggets end up missing the playoffs. His the or the Nuggets' defensive rating when he's on the court compared to when he's off is pretty drastic. When he's on, it's 105, and when he's off, it jumps to a little over 108. And he's in the 93rd percentile in steal rate. So when you have your big men generating turnovers, um, the way that Jokic and Millsap are, they they just kind of fit perfectly together. And Millsap's at that point in his career where he's he doesn't have to have the ball in his hands. He's willing to do the dirty work, and he's just been a, a huge positive for them. And speaking of someone who's willing to do the dirty work, Mason Plumley has been incredibly effective for this Nuggets team. This is something that I talked about on the Kings podcast, actually, with why I think Yogi Ferrell is such an effective player in Sacramento, which is that he runs a very similar style of offense to De'Aaron Fox. Yogi isn't as fast as De'Aaron Fox, but he's one of the fastest point guards in the league. He's really good at pressuring the opposing team in transition, and the team's offense flows pretty seamlessly from De'Aaron Fox into Yogi Ferrell running the show as his backup, and I think you have a very similar dynamic with Plumlee and Nikola Jokic. Obviously, Plumlee isn't anywhere near the same level of passer as Jokic is, Even though Jokic's three-point shot has fallen off a bit this year, he's still a lot more effective of a floor spacer than Mason Plumlee. But if you put Plumlee in for Jokic at that center spot, it's a very similar style of offense that you can run with him in the pivot, just obviously with him not having the ball as much as their best player. 
And the other thing that interests me about Plumlee is that on the one hand, he is, I think, slightly overpaid for that backup role. And, you know, the trade that brought him to Denver isn't exactly a trade that will live on fondly in the minds of Nuggets fans, but he's a really effective player for them. And this is something that I thought about with the Otto Porter trade as well, that teams tend to get, or certainly fans tend to get a little focused on players who are maybe getting paid more than they should. And they don't focus enough on the fact that if you're getting a $10 million a year player for $14 million a year, that guy's going to be a lot more effective in your rotation than properly paying a minimum salary guy to play replacement caliber basketball. So Plumlee's just a really, really nice compliment to both Millsap and Jokic. And when Plumlee and Jokic are actually on the court together, they have a net rating of 12.3, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, so I, that they're, the sample size isn't huge on that, but just the fact that you can play those guys guys together is is an interesting dynamic going forward um and he's just he's a solid defender and just kind of gives them a different look at the center position he's really good around the rim he's shooting 71 percent at the rim and he's a, a more effective rim protector the the when or i guess when they when they're able to bring him in the offense doesn't really change it just kind of changes who they run it through so instead of running it through the center position with Jokic uh, one of the guards like Murray or Harris are then able to kind of take it o- take it over more and Plumlee's out there just working hard on hard on the glass and rim running and being a really effective screener. I'm not as confident in the Jokic Plumlee minutes together just because even though those numbers have looked great this year in the past there have been issues with trying to play Jokic and Plumlee together And those issues have been in all the ways that you would expect there to be issues, namely switching issues. If one of those two guys has to play the four, you're definitely going to be giving up a lot defensively. Absolutely. So I don't want to buy in too much to their numbers together just because that hasn't been as successful in the past. But that is definitely something to watch with those two going forward. Absolutely. And it's just more of a fail safe in case Millsap kind of gets another injury, another unfortunate injury and like I said, they're, they're not using it a lot, but every now and then if they need to go big, um, it could be an interesting look to try and throw off uh, their opponents. Let's move on now to some of the players lower in the rungs of the big man rotations. And I wanted to start with Trey Lyles because he's someone who last year was super effective for the Nuggets as a stretch four in spots. But he's just absolutely fallen off the map this year. And in particular, the reason that he's gone from regular and effective rotation player to a real drag on the Nuggets this year is just that his three-point shooting has absolutely disappeared. And I certainly was not expecting that going into this season. Yeah, he's he's just been bad this year. And he, he projects, his entire skill set projects him to be an effective stretch four. But and he's shooting 25% from three this year on over three attempts a game which you you just can't have and if you're shooting that poorly and you know your your shtick is that you're a stretch four you you're you're making yourself unplayable when you're shooting that poorly from outside and he's still only rebounding about four times a game so there's not much positive that he's doing for them when he's out on the floor and 
we will certainly talk about this more in a little bit, but the Nuggets rotation has been hit really hard with injuries this year. But the one area where they haven't been hit as hard by the injury bug is up front in that power forward slash center range of the rotation. So it's even more surprising to me that he hasn't been able to seize a larger role in the rotation because if there was going to be opportunity for him to do that, on the one hand, yeah, not having as many injuries up front would make it harder for him to get that opportunity. On the other hand, there just aren't that many big men in the Nuggets rotation. So if he was able to knock down those three-point shots like he was last year, he could have been a really effective contributor, which almost makes it even more surprising that they're doing so much better this year despite him playing a major role and not exactly living up to expectations in that role. Yeah, I think he's gotten the opportunity. I mean, he's played, you know, almost 20 minutes a game this year, and he just hasn't been what they want him to. And Juancho Hernan Gomez has kind of taken his spot over. And Hernan Gomez is shooting 38% from three, and Andy's rebounding more. He's just kind of turned into a more effective player, and Miles is... I'm not sure what happened to his shot, but he, it's just fallen off a cliff. And finally, the biggest question mark on that front court rotation for the Nuggets. Michael Porter Jr. has yet to play a game this year after being drafted with the number 14 overall pick in last year's NBA draft. It's difficult for me to have a non-biased opinion about Michael Porter Jr. just because I was so terrified that the Kings would take him with the second overall pick in the past draft that it's you know hard for me to get over that. But with Porter Jr., him being picked, I think last year when we were doing our draft podcasts, I said that anybody who takes him after seven or eight is going to get a really good upside play. Him falling all the way to 14 makes it an incredible upside play. And of all the teams for him to fall to, to be that upside play, a team that's got a pretty young core and is currently second in the Western Conference is a pretty good fit on that front. Now, the thing about Porter is that he's been out this entire year recovering from that back injury. And Tim Connolly, the Nuggets president of basketball operations, said that Porter Jr. has not yet been ruled out for the year. That was right before the All-Star break. The Nuggets certainly have a history of keeping the injury timelines pretty quiet. I mean, I don't think anybody had any idea that Isaiah Thomas was going to come back when he did until about a couple days before he actually re-entered the lineup. Do you think that we see Michael Porter Jr. at all this year for Denver, or do you think they just give him the whole year to rest and recover and make another push for it next year? I hope we don't see him. I I don't see the benefit in bringing him back this year. Um, so going into the draft last year, I had mixed feelings on him because he was clearly a super talented guy. I had a lot of worries about the back injury, and any of those you know top five picks wouldn't have made a lot of sense. Um, but the fact that he fell to the Nuggets at 14 was an absolute steal because I mean, the the skills and the talent that, the, that this guy has could make him one of the best players from that draft you know, 10 years from now if he can stay healthy. But to bring him in and disrupt the rotation when they're a game and a half out of the one seed, I don't think that makes any sense. They're getting a ton of contributions from guys they never thought they would like Malik Beasley, Torrey Craig's been really good for them. Monte Morris has been awesome. Juancho Hernan Gomez has been really good. So just bringing in a guy who's been injured and is a rookie, I think it would do more harm than good at this point. I mentioned this with Andre Roberson recently, and I think something similar applies for Porter Jr. with the caveat that 
I think you're going to be a lot more careful with Porter Jr. than Roberson. But if they're healthy, either one of them by, say, March, sometime between March 15th and April 1st, I think it's worth it to throw them out there for like five to 10 games just to try and slowly knock the rust off. If they can be really effective, consider them for playoff minutes. If they can't, then just shut them down for the playoffs, but at least get a chance to run them out there with the rest of the players on the floor. I feel like that's more applicable to Roberson just because, you know, we already have a baseline for what his play in the NBA looks like. We don't for Porter and, I think you made a really good point about disrupting the rotations. Given what we saw from Michael Porter Jr. in high school, I think he's the kind of player that could be really disruptive to a team's rotation if he just sort of comes in and gets the ball and tries to be the superstar that he was in high school. Maybe he'll be that superstar in the NBA one day, but he certainly isn't going to be right away. And bringing him into a team that already has a superstar and an incredibly deep and fleshed out rotation might be a bit more of an issue than for, say, the Thunder, where they can just throw Roberson into one of the best defensive schemes in the NBA and say, go for it. You know, save Paul George's legs 15 minutes a night by guarding the toughest assignment. I mean, when we were talking about Plumlee, we mentioned a guy who's willing to do the dirty work and all the little things and doesn't need the ball. Michael Porter is not that guy. At least everything we saw from him in high school and his, you know, limited college minutes he is not that guy. He need he needs the ball. He likes to shoot. He likes to score. So I ain't giving him any substantial minutes. Um, I think would just be foolish at this point if they have their seed a hundred percent locked up and he's deemed a hundred percent healthy, and they're resting guys and they want to throw throw him out there for you know ten to fifteen minutes for the last few games of the season, just to kind of hey you're in the NBA. Let's see what you got. Sure, why not? But I, I, I just still see it doing more harm than good. And I think just sitting him for the whole year and having him go into an off season fully healthy, where he can then get implemented in the rotation and get used to these guys in the off season with practice and training camp would just be better for everyone involved. So Michael Porter Jr. is probably the single biggest X factor for the future of the Denver Nuggets. But number two on that list, I would say with quite a high degree of confidence, is Jamal Murray. And so with that, let's move to talking about the wings and guards for this Denver Nuggets team. And with Jamal Murray, if you just look across the board at his per game numbers, there's really only one sort of major difference. I mean, he's playing slightly more minutes per game, just under two more minutes per game than he was last year. His points per game number has gone from 16.7 to 18.1. His rebounding's gone up a little bit. His steal numbers have actually gone down a bit. He's slightly less efficient from both the field and from three-point range. His free throw numbers are also down a little bit, but from 90.5 to 84% is not that big of a deal. There are a couple things that really stood out to me so far from Jamal Murray this year. The biggest one is that he's really sort of embraced being that off-ball point guard that works really well for a Denver Nuggets team that is going to want Nikola Jokic to be creating the offense 99% of the time. Murray's just so inconsistent. And on the one hand, yeah, he's only 21 years old. He's got a ton of room to grow, incredibly talented prospect. On the other hand, if he can't put together a more consistent effort night in, night out, I'm not sure he ever reaches that couple of all-star game level ceiling that a lot of people have seen from him. 
so my thing with Murray is that he's really completely changed his game from what it was in in college and what he kind of projected to be. I mean, he projected as kind of a combo guard, more more of a shooting guard, not playing with with the ball or not really being a primary ball handler um, a whole lot. And since Denver's never had a clear point guard in his time time there, he's kind of been forced to develop into that and we've seen a lot of that this year I, with his assist being up he's done a much better job of kind of getting teammates involved and taking ownership of that kind of quote-unquote point guard role his shooting his streaky shooting is really frustrating and i think the biggest factor in that is that his his shot selection this year has been a lot worse his mid-range attempts are up um nine percent this year compared to previous years. So while he is doing a better job of moving the ball and kind of adapting and changing his game, it he definitely needs to figure out how to take more efficient shots. Let's move on to the person who has probably had the most disappointing season, at least in my mind, of any member of the Denver Nuggets. Gary Harris has missed a ton of time due to injury. And again, as an aside, I think that's a bit of an underrated theme of Denver's season that they've had so many guys miss so much of the year due to injury, yet they're still doing as well as they have been. But going back to Gary Harris, he had a huge breakout season last year, and then he's missed most of this year with various injury concerns. But even when he has been on the floor, he just hasn't looked the same. I mean, his three-point shooting is down from just about 40% last year on a healthy number of attempts to 31.5% this year on five attempts per game. His defense has not looked anywhere near as good as it did last year, where he was their primary wing defender and their best defensive player, honestly. Granted, a huge part of that is because Paul Millsap missed so much of the year, but Gary Harris looked like the archetype of an incredibly successful 3 and D player. He developed great chemistry with Nikola Jokic in two-man game, just like Murray already has. And it's really interesting that Denver has done as well as they have, despite missing so much time and despite the fall off from last year of someone who you could definitely make the argument was their second best player last year. I think it's a real testament to Mike Malone and the front office or the team that they're able to construct because and Gary Harris has missed was it 25 games this year and they've gone 16 and nine without someone who was one of their best players last year and one of their best, you know, young pieces going forward. And that's because they've gotten really good production from guys like Malik Beasley and Monte Morris, who coming into the season, you know, very few people had ever even heard of. And Harris's injuries, there hasn't been just one long stretch of games that he missed it's all been kind of chunks of five to seven games here and there that he that he misses so it's just this nagging injury that he can't seem to get rid of and I I think that's really affected his ability to get in into any type of rhythm whether it's shooting or on the defensive end of the floor and that's evident with his numbers essentially being down across the board and him making you know a minimal impact So you mentioned earlier how Jamal Murray has had to take up a lot of the slack at point guard just because the Nuggets didn't really have a point guard and therefore they had to sort of shoehorn Murray into that role. But it kind of looks like they did find their point guard this year in Monty Morris, who played three NBA games for the Nuggets last year, spent 
almost the entire season in the G League. And this year has been one of the most, if not the most effective backup point guards in the league. He's shooting just a tick under 50% from the floor. He is shooting just a tick over 42% from deep on a decent number of attempts. He has, I don't know if he still has the best assist to turnover ratio in the NBA, but if he doesn't, it's pretty darn close. He's averaging almost four assists per game and 0.6 turnovers per game. Man, he is everything that I wanted the Kings to get out of Frank Mason and more. And it's just shocking to me that he's already looking like one of those decade-long veteran backup point guards, and it's only his second year in the league, and really his first full-time year in the league. He's so much fun. I I, I was at a Nuggets-Timberwolves game uh, a couple weeks ago, and he just did everything right. And he wasn't the best athlete out there. He wasn't, you know, shocking in what he did. But when you watch him, just he doesn't ever make any mistakes. And like you said, with his turnovers um, on cleaning the glass, his turnover percentage is 5.9%, which is in the 100th percentile. So, and this guy just doesn't make errors for the team. And for a guy that's played three NBA games is really shocking. He's been huge for them. Um, his effective field goal percentage is in the 91st percentile at his position. He's been a good defender at 105.4 defensive rating. Um, and his steals and blocks aren't super impressive, but like I said, he just plays really strong team defense and just does all of the little things on both ends of the floor to, to help the Nuggets win. This is a bit of a hot take. And I think this take is only coming about just because I have a lot of questions about the way that the most approved player award is given out. But I think that Malik Beasley should get a lot more consideration than he has been for that award. And the main reason behind that is I think that at this point in the season, most people would say that Pascal Siakam is a runaway favorite for the award. And he's definitely deserving of it in a whole lot of ways. But the main difference is he was sort of starting to break out a little bit last year and then has just continued that this year. Whereas last year, Malik Beasley played 62 games for the Denver Nuggets, didn't even crack 10 minutes a game, shot 41% from the floor, shot 34% from deep, wasn't really all that special in any one area of the game. And you contrast that with this year, he's playing 24 minutes a game, 50% from the floor, 43.3% from deep on almost five attempts per game, He's been a flamethrower for this Nuggets team. He's looked so much better on the defensive end. And if you think about most improved player in the sense of whose numbers jumped the most from last year to this year, then maybe Beasley isn't your guy just because he's not exactly a 20-point-per-game scorer. But the difference between what we saw from him last year in a pretty healthy sample size and what we've seen from him this year is staggering. That award always essentially just goes to whoever gets the biggest change in role. So and I, I think Siakam's got that pretty much locked up, but I absolutely understand what you're saying about Beasley. I and mean, he's still, he's like, he's only playing 24 minutes and he's essentially, you know, his role has improved, but not really. He's still that kind of guy off the bench and he's, his minutes have improved because he's been so effective and so much better. So I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from that he's, he probably is, you know, the the actual most improved player in the league this year. But there's, I'd be shocked if Siakam doesn't actually win that award. And again, I mean, 
I think Siakam definitely deserves it. I mean, he's had an incredible season and he has had that huge change in role from last year where he was a part of their bench as opposed to, you know, starting now more regularly. Right. I think it really just is that I'm a bit uncomfortable with how that award and sixth man of the year award have been given out in recent years. And I think that even though there's no chance that anyone other than Siakam wins the award, or maybe there's a small chance that someone else wins it. I don't think there's any chance at all that Malik Beasley wins it. But I would like players more in that kind of mold to be given consideration for the award. And as an aside, a lot of people have talked about De'Aaron Fox for Most Improved Player of the Year award. And you're not going to hear me slander De'Aaron Fox. I mean, I wore his jersey to a Warriors game the other night. So (laughs) luckily, I didn't get anything thrown at me. But, you know, whatever. But the thing about De'Aaron Fox is he's a second-year player who's taken the leap. That shouldn't be the kind of person that you give most improved player award to, in my mind, because you should expect second-year players to take a big leap. Right. And yeah, sure, Beasley is a third-year player, but I mean, he went from end-of-the-bench guy to huge part of their rotation. And it's hard to find anyone else you can say that about in the NBA this year that's made such a leap from, I'm not so sure about his future, to wow, this guy's going to have a long, successful career in the NBA. And that's certainly how I feel about Malik Beasley. There's definitely a difference between the general course of development, like a guy making a huge jump from his first to second year, and a guy actually working on and improving his game, which is what Malik Beasley's done. And Siakam kind of falls into both those camps. Um, But I I, I absolutely agree that I, I think the guys that, legitimately change their game and work their butt off and do get legitimately better and force the coaches to change their role should get more looks than the guys who just develop in their natural course of their career. And before we wrap up the wing and guard discussion, I wanted to talk about one of my favorite players ever, Isaiah Thomas, finally making his comeback for the Denver Nuggets. And it's interesting because I don't know what kind of role he's going to play going forward for this team, but I've certainly read a lot of buzz about him being a huge veteran mentor in this locker room. And a lot of quotes about Isaiah Thomas tend to get blown up in a way that I don't think is really in concordance with his personality, certainly not with the personality that I knew of him when I followed him when he was in Sacramento. You know, him saying things like, you know, I'm one of the best players in the league and I'm going to keep shooting the ball every time it gets to me, you know. Obviously, he does have that confidence that he's going to get back to being one of the best players in the league like he was in Boston, but I just don't think he's a chemistry-wrecking kind of player, and I think a lot of quotes about him recently have been taken in that context in a way that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not sure where he's going to play in the Denver rotation come playoff time because he's just going to get hunted on the defensive end every time he's out there on the court. On the other hand, he has made six of his 12 three-pointers in his two games so far this year. So if he can be scorching hot from deep, then maybe his defense doesn't matter all that much, and he can be a super effective 10-minute-per-game spark plug just bombing from 28 feet. I enjoyed that Boston season of Isaiah Thomas as much as the next person, but I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of out on Isaiah, um, at least for at least for the Nuggets. His defense is appalling. Um, I don't think there's really any reason why he should see substantial minutes especially since he's struggled to you know stay healthy since that hip injury um but and if, if he's gonna shoot the way he has been then 
bringing him in for 10 minutes when they're like if they're getting their buck kicked and they need someone to come in and knock down a couple threes to spark some energy and you know get 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 them within 10 or 15 points to try and spark a comeback then that's kind of where I see him coming coming in for this team other than that I just don't see what the fit is I mean they've they've clearly been just fine without him and he's just one of these volume shooters that I think kind of disrupts the flow of their offense and is a guy that just kind of needs his own team normally I would have kicked you off the podcast immediately for slandering Isaiah Thomas (laughs) but I do agree with you in the sense that I don't think this is the best team for him fit wise and I want him to succeed everywhere he goes just because I will always be a huge Isaiah Thomas fan. I just don't think this is the team for him. On the other hand, if it gets to the offseason, if I'm the Orlando Magic, I want to offer Isaiah like a two-year, $25 million contract. That's exactly what I was thinking. I think he could be a Lou Williams-type six-man-of-the-year candidate for an Orlando team that has a bunch of really talented potential defensive wreckers in the front court, but doesn't have anybody who can handle the ball or create their own offense unless Markel Fultz returns to University of Washington, Markel Fultz. And I'm not sure the fit is there for Thomas in Denver, but if he can play really well down the stretch, maybe hit a couple of big playoff threes and then get himself a short-term big money contract with an Orlando or maybe even a Phoenix, which would be hilarious, Isaiah Thomas going back to Phoenix. (laughs) But I would watch him going to the Orlando Magic this summer because if he does, I think that's a great fit for team and player alike. Just to be clear, I I like Isaiah Thomas. I want him to succeed and do well and be healthy, and I've really enjoyed the way he plays since he came out of Washington. I just this fit and coming off of injury, it it just doesn't make any sense. And and the Orlando Magic were the very first team I I was thinking of when what's a bad team that he could go to just and just take over their offense and get up all his shots. And I I think he would be a ton of fun with those long freakish athletes that they have down there. Another fun team for him would be Detroit. I think the difference in how much fun they are to play with between Isaiah Thomas and Reggie Jackson has got to be one of the most laughable differences in the NBA. Oh my God, I hate Reggie. And if you could get Blake energized, you can get Andre Drummond a bunch of lobs and create space for him with three-point shooting. That'd be another really fun place for Isaiah to end up. I guess it's just that I really want him to succeed, and I think he can be a minimal but decent contributor for the Nuggets whenever they need just a super spark plug but sure I think it would be a lot better for player and team if they find him a team that's a lot more desperate for guard play than the Nuggets are definitely all right let's move on to looking at the future outlook for this Nuggets team and let's get started by looking at the future outlook for this season what do you think about the Nuggets' chances of getting to the Western Conference Finals? And I won't try and discuss any time horizon beyond the Western Conference Finals for what I hope are obvious reasons. <laughs> yes, and really, as long as they can avoid the Warriors before they get there, I, I really like their chances. Um, I, I still think the Thunder are kind of the best bet to face the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals right now. Just the way that Paul George has been playing on both ends of the floor has been, you know, he'd likely be, you know, top MVP candidate any other year. 
um, if it wasn't for Giannis and Harden this year. But Denver still hasn't fallen off. They're um, only one and a half games back of Golden State. They've got a couple game lead over the Thunder. So if they if they can hold on to that two spot, I like their chances a lot more than if they end up falling to three or four. I would be worried about the Thunder if I were them. And on the one hand, they have actually won both of their games against Oklahoma City this year. On the other hand, both of those games were rock fights. And generally speaking, I don't like Denver's chances of winning rock fights. Yeah. And I think part of it also is I'm not sure how much it matters to them to be the two seed versus the three seed, just because, you know, they're going to be matching up with the Thunder in the second round either way. But they want to stay on that side of the bracket. They do not want to be anywhere near that four seed come playoff time. Yeah, so and I I think staying that two seed and having that home court advantage in the second round is actually a pretty big deal for them. And they have the best home record in the Western Conference at twenty five and four right now, and they're fifteen and fourteen on the road. So I I do think being at home, you know, I'll use the cliche of the altitude, um, have that as an advantage and I, I think that does make a big difference for them where if Denver and OKC end up flopping that two three position um, and they have to have a seven game series in Oklahoma City I think that really 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 hurts their chances of advancing yeah that's a really good point that home record does make a bigger difference for the Nuggets than pretty much anyone else I guess my point is more just, and maybe you have different thoughts on this, but would you think that they would care more about getting the two seed over the three seed or staying out of the Warriors side of the bracket? Because even though getting a home court advantage is a huge difference for any team and a particularly huge difference for them, I think their number one priority should just be we need to avoid playing the Warriors as long as possible and just hope against hope that Steph Curry turns an ankle or something. I would knock on wood but i'm pretty sure my desk is fiberboard <laughs> yeah and if they fall to the four seed or even worse then i think something even so something pretty drastic will have happened which will be cause for concern in many different levels and just when will they play the warriors um i i, I if i were them i'd still be fighting for the one seed they're only a game and a half back and if they're if they can somehow weasel their way into that one seed i I think that is really exciting for them. Um, but yes, staying in that two and three has to be their top priority um, over really anything else. If the Warriors decide to try even less than they usually do during the regular season <laughs> down the stretch and the Nuggets can get into that one seed, I hadn't even thought about that just because I hadn't even considered the prospect of the Warriors being dethroned. But Obviously, the Nuggets are going to care a lot more about the stretch run of the regular season than the Warriors will, and for pretty good reason. And if the Nuggets can end up as the number one overall seed, who knows? You know, maybe they can play the Warriors to six games rather than five. I mean, I don't think there's a higher upside than that, honestly. And I don't think that's a knock on the Nuggets as much as it is a recognition of the fact that this Warriors team was a historic team before they added Kevin Durant and then again before they added DeMarcus Cousins. The biggest test um, for them is the fact that they're, they they do not have an easy schedule going forward and their remaining schedule is the fourth toughest in the league. So I mean, the more I look at it, I, I'd be pretty surprised if 
Golden State does fall out of that one spot, but they, they they definitely have a lot of work ahead of them. The good news is that Oklahoma City has the toughest uh, remaining schedule in the league, so that may work to their advantage. Um, where OKC might just tire themselves out or Paul George stops playing at a ridiculous level. But as of now, um, it'll, it'll be really interesting and could be tougher, you know, both those teams to hold on to the two and three seed here. Let's talk about some matchups for the Nuggets going forward, who they might want as a first round matchup, who they might want as a second round matchup. If we're talking second round matchups, I think it's pretty clear that the best case scenario for them is that they manage to take the one seed and then they play Portland as the four seed. I think if they manage to take the one seed, say, play the Clippers who are the eighth seed because the Kings are obviously going to make it to at least the seventh seed, but <laughs> playing some team other than the Kings, and I'm not saying this just as a Kings fan, I think that the Kings will be a particularly difficult matchup for the Nuggets just because they're going to run at Jokic constantly. And Jokic trying to stop the Aaron Fox on a switch is not going to go well for them. But I think the most likely scenario is that the Nuggets end up as the two seed. And we're looking at probably the Spurs for them in the first round. I think that's a pretty good matchup for the Nuggets. I don't think they should be all that upset if that's what ends up happening. Yeah, and the the Clippers would be the ideal matchup. Kings would be... I. I could see a, a first round upset there actually um you know it goes seven games but the the pace and the amount of threes that the kings shoot i think there's a lot less room for error on the nuggets side um the the spurs would be a really really interesting matchup um just they're they're a slow team that doesn't shoot a lot of threes but they so i don't know i i, I always just struggle to bet against the spurs but just from a talent standpoint i i think the nuggets would be okay with that um and and I don't hate the matchup if they end up uh kind of matching up against the Jazz either who have been pretty inconsistent this year and I think from a, a talent point and a kind of just a matchup standpoint I I think it lines up pretty well for both of them so looking to the second round at that point again I'm assuming the Nuggets are going to be in the 2-3 matchup probably as the 2 seed that's my best guess at this point so the thunder would be i think pretty indisputably the worst matchup for them in the second round unless somehow they end up in the warriors bracket and the nuggets have to play the warriors in the second round but in terms of other teams they might face utah if they manage to upset the thunder again i think would be a decent matchup for denver although if rudy gobert plays his absolute best that would be really tough for Denver if Rudy can at least partially neutralize Jokic. And then the other matchup that I would maybe at least look at for the Nuggets would be if Houston, say, falls to the sixth seed, manages to upset the Thunder in round one. I think that would be another really interesting task for Denver, but it seems pretty much not guaranteed, but pretty close to guaranteed for me that if the Nuggets manage to make it out of the first round, they're almost certainly facing Oklahoma City in round two, and that's not the greatest matchup for Denver. Oklahoma City's really just the one matchup I really don't like for them either. Um, if they find a way to get matched up against the Jazz, I think they're kind of able to 
not neutralize, but limit the impact that Gobert has because all of their, or most of their big men can kind of pull him out of the paint. Um, and the Rockets, who, who knows what, and they're good, I guess, I think, maybe, I don't know. They're weird this year. And Chris Paul is starting to play like old, like Chris Paul from a couple years ago, but is he going to hurt himself again? Um, you know, who knows? And that, that, that Thunder team is just clicking on all cylinders and is just an incredible defense. And Paul George is just playing at another level. Sorry to kind of keep, keep harping on that, but he's been incredible this year. And Westbrook, you know, he's shooting horribly this year, but he's, he's relinquished a lot of the, the, the scoring role and a lot of the kind of alpha status to Paul George, which I, I think has been immense for them as a team. Let's move on to looking at the offseason decisions for this Nuggets team. And the biggest one by far is deciding whether or not they're going to pick up Paul Millsap's team option for next year at $30.5 million. If I'm the Nuggets, I really want to try and find a way to keep Paul Millsap around and maybe he would rather have, say, a three-year deal for slightly less money than opting into that team option for next year. Obviously, it wouldn't be his decision to opt into that team option, but it'll be really interesting to me to see what Denver does with Paul Millsap's option because, on the one hand, he's someone you really, really want to have around on your team. On the other hand, if they pick up his option then they've basically committed a quarter of their salary next season to him already. And that's before we even get around to signing the rest of the end of the bench guys, since they have a couple other expiring contracts as well. What are your thoughts on what Denver should do with Paul Millsap's option? Millsap has been really good for them this year, but there's no, no way that I'm bringing him back for 30 and a half million dollars next year. And if, if they are able to, use that money to go out and sign, you know, a couple cu- couple other pieces. I think that does more for them than bringing back a 34-year-old Paul Millsap with $30 million on the books. Um, and it's tough because I, I think Millsap is still a, re- a really good player. Just if it, if it was cheaper, I'd 100% do it. But at $30 million, I think that's absurd to bring him back on that. Um, it'll if they don't, I think it'll give them a better opportunity to integrate Porter Jr. into the lineup. Um, and I, I would much rather see them just kind of use that money elsewhere to sign other role players or um, bring in, you know, a, a new full-time starting power forward. If I'm Tim Connolly and the Denver Nuggets front office, I'm going to Paul Millsap. Obviously, I'm only doing this on July 1st because there's no such thing as tampering in the NBA and no one would even consider having <laughs> these conversations before July 1st. But That'd be ridiculous. Yeah, that would never happen. But if I'm the Nuggets front office, I would go up to Paul Millsap and say, look, we're probably going to decline your team option for next year, but before we submit that paperwork right now, we're offering you three years, $42 million declining salary on the contract. So you're getting paid more for age 35 season than age 37 season. I think that would work out really well for both sides. And I think the only mitigating factor on that front is, does Paul Millsap basically just say, I'm going to chase the money wherever it is. Certainly his career up to this point has made me think that he's not really that kind of a player. 
And to be honest, there was an argument that three years, 90 million with a team option for the third year was a little bit of an undermarket deal anyway. If I'm the Nuggets, I really, really, really want to keep him around. It's again, just what you mentioned earlier, that $30.5 million number is just too big to pay for a guy in his age 35 season who's had a bit of a recent injury history and has spent his entire career as an undersized big man. Yeah, and if, if they're able to restructure and get them for cheaper, um, you know, I'm kind of all I'm I'm all for it. Um, I I just worry about what locking that type of money up in you know a power forward in his mid 30s will do. You know, when they need to be, or when the time comes for them to kind of re-sign guys like Beasley and Morris and you know and and some of their other younger pieces that will be able to be more productive for a longer term so the, the the money is my biggest concern not how he fits or you know what 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 he can bring to the team are there any role players in particular that you might want to target with that Millsap money assuming the nuggets do decline his option off the top of my head no so great podcasting um were there any that you had on the top of your mind I would consider looking at Jamichael Green, especially if he plays better down the stretch for the Clippers. He's someone who I think could be similar to Paul Millsap, obviously not in the same echelon as a defender, but someone who can threaten the other team from beyond the three-point arc as a stretch four and be at least a solid defensive player who knows how to read schemes really well and maybe is not an all NBA defense level player like Millsap was in his prime, or even I think just the next tier below that this year when he's been really effective. But Jermichael Green could be someone who's really like maybe 70% of Paul Millsap at like 40 to 50% of the price. Yeah. Yeah. And I could definitely see that. Um, I, I, I think Marcus Morris would be a really interesting fit. Um, you know, kind of guys like him, even Miritich, uh, I mean, I think Randall would fit awesome there, but I think he's going to get paid pretty handsomely wherever he goes. Um, but if they're able to, I, if they're able to kind of find a guy like Morris, um, where he's that stretch four that can play uh, that that high level of defense to kind of make up for Jokic's lack thereof, um, I, I think that would be an ideal fit. And Jermichael Green is someone who would who would fit really nicely into that role all right anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up here i think we nailed it well he is tyler metcalf you can find him on twitter at t metcalf 11 and you can also find his work on the hashtag basketball website you can follow me on twitter at n-b-a-j-o-h-n-s-o-n and you can also find my written work on the hashtag basketball website i just had a piece published about Bogdan Bogdanovich and his change in role for this season. And Tyler will have a piece coming out soon about Mikhail Bridges and how he's been playing this year in Phoenix. So definitely check both of those out. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com and as always thanks so much for listening